You're listening to teaching from the Word of God, provided by Black Forest Chapel. This is the church where you will find biblical teaching and authentic worship with family and friends. We are located in Black Forest near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs, Colorado. We invite you to join us this Sunday. Find our location, worship times, and more at blackforestchapel.org. Good morning, Black Forest Chapel. This is the youth band, and we're going to be leading our worship music today. Thank you so much for watching, and we hope that this service blesses you. Psalm 62, 5 through 8 says, My soul, wait silently for God and God alone. For my expectation is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. And God is my strength and my glory, the rock of my strength and my refuge. Trust Him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us.
Let's sing. This is the time that we would normally do offering. If you're able to, we invite you to give to Black Forest Chapel. You can either mail a check to the office or give online at our website. Um, And now let's pray. Dear God, thank you that we can come worship you today. Thank you that even though we can't be together as a church, we know that you are with each one of us because you are in us. And thank you that we have hope and joy and peace because of you, and that we can get through uncertain times because you live. I pray for anyone watching who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, that you would touch them through this music or this service um, or through what you're doing in their lives and draw them close to yourself. And I thank you for all the gifts that you give us. Thank you that you have a plan for us and that this pandemic did not surprise you. You're totally in control and that every good gift is from you. Especially as we celebrate Mother's Day this weekend, I thank you for our moms. Thank you for the incredible blessing that they are to us. And um, I pray that this service will just glorify you and... um, May your name be praised, because blessed be your name. In Jesus' name, amen.
Good morning, everyone. Good morning to Black Forest Chapel Church, both online as well as those who are here in the congregation. Um, This is Scott Barbie, and so Mike Hartle asked if I would preach today, so I'm happy to do that. Uh, First of all, say Happy Mother's Day uh, to all the mothers out there, and um, glad to be here during this strange time in which the congregation assembly is much smaller, but my family and I have been listening online uh, to Pastor Mike and uh, also Scott, so I'm glad to join with them in the preaching rotation. So with that, why don't we go ahead and ask the Lord to be with us, and then we'll get started with the sermon. Gracious Father, we thank you that we can be here separated, but still together by the Spirit. Lord, we get to enjoy reading your word, praying together, even though times are different, times are strange, we're perhaps more isolated and not able to connect as well as Christians like to, as, we, as we're so accustomed to fellowshipping. Lord, we know we can still enjoy the, the fellowship of the believers that we do have around us, the, the few interactions we get to have. Lord, we know that we're not alone that by your Spirit. We're always connected to the body of Christ. So I hope that sets well with uh, those people who feel like they're, and they're getting cabin fever. They've just been shut in too long. Help us to remember that we are in your hands uh, and that you'll get us through this time of pandemic. Uh, it's certainly going to be a memorable one for many of us. Lord, I pray that we can resume normal services soon at the right time and when it's safe. And I thank you that uh, we're, we have the technology uh, that allows us to do this, uh, to preach on a Saturday, to listen to it on Sunday. So, Lord, you're a gracious God. Uh, you're helping not only us, but tens of thousands of churches around the world learn how to be creative, to bring the gospel of grace to those who need to hear it. Lord, help me to preach this message well, that as we look at how to be rightly related and devoted to our Lord, that what we read in Scripture is something we can remember, we can live according to, and we can also teach others. So, Father, we invite you uh, to be in our midst, to be glorified by what we say and do, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in the book of John to begin with, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to John, chapter 3. But we're going to be in other parts of the Bible as well. We're going to be in Numbers, chapter 21. We're going to be in 2 Kings, chapter 18, before we return back to John, chapter 3. Now, that might seem like a set of disconnected passages, But they aren't, and the reason why is because the same story occurs in each of the passages. The same story is found in Numbers 21, in 2 Kings 18, in John chapter 3. And so since we have the same story in all three places, I want to talk about all three, especially as it relates to how we need to be devoted to the Lord. So to begin with, let me... Uh, use as an illustration of, of how to be rightly devoted. Let me use an illustration from the movie War Room. It's a Sherwood film production. You might be familiar with the Sherwood film series of movies like Facing the Giants and Fireproof. War Room came out a number of years ago, and the movie introduces us to a couple uh, uh, Tony and Elizabeth Jordan. They're a Christian couple but they're not as devoted to the Lord as they should be. They have lost their way. Tony was a loving husband and a kind father and a committed Christian, and yet as he becomes more and more prominent in his company, he's enjoying the bonuses, the high income, the company car, the trips, the glamour, the prestige. He no longer has a devotion to his God. He no longer has a devotion to his wife and daughter. And Elizabeth, well, the same thing happens to her. Her career means a lot to her. 
she finds herself not as committed to the Lord. She even admits that she's not hot, she's not cold, she's somewhere in between, she's lukewarm. And so another Christian woman tells Elizabeth, you have a problem. Your problem is that you aren't devoted to the Lord. And the reason why you are struggling in your marriage with your husband, the reason why you fight all the time is because you aren't devoted to God. And you have to be devoted to him in order for him to help you with your struggling marriage. Elizabeth is resistant at first, but then she quickly realizes that uh, her coach and mentor and friend is absolutely right. So she commits herself to praying for her husband. God starts to influence Tony in different ways. He has to take Tony down a number of notches. He has to humble Tony in order for Tony to see what he's doing. Because of the prestige and the glamour of the workplace, Tony is not only more interested in making money, but he's also finding himself more interested in another woman. So his thoughts are starting to stray. And it's only after he loses his job and his income and his reputation that he realizes he needs the Lord. He falls on his knees in his house. He asks for forgiveness. He repents. He repents to his, or he asks for forgiveness from his wife. The restoration process, the regeneration process begins to take place as he now focuses his attention back on the Lord and how to be devoted to him and to his wife and his daughter. This is a constant refrain in the life of people, but also believers. The world, the flesh, the devil, they keep on crowding in all the time, trying to woo us away from the Lord, trying to not have us devoted to him, but have us devoted to others. So it's a constant struggle for the Christian believer. How do we maintain a complete devotion to the Lord when the world is constantly feeding us temptations? Well, Jesus talks about how we need to be devoted to him, but the rest of Scripture does as well. And what we need to do as believers in the 21st century is to remind ourselves that the attacks will come, Things will pull us away from the Lord, and what can we do to prepare for that so that we always keep a firm focus and a complete devotion to Christ? So I'm going to start in John chapter 3, as I mentioned, and then we're going to go to the other passages later. So John chapter 3, I'm going to read the first 15 verses, and then I'll start explaining some of it. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with them. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Okay, a little bit of background here. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, as we know, if we're good Bible readers, we know that the Pharisees and Jesus had a lot of run-ins, mainly because Jesus was pointing out their hypocrisy. They were people who, over time, enjoyed the power from their position 
They made a lot of rules, a lot of laws. They focused on the tradition of the elders. They also focused on the rabbinical teachings. They were less focused on the Bible than they were on those rules that they felt were more important. And there were reasons why it grew into that, which we won't, have, we won't get into now. But they, they decided that following the rules was more important than anything. And so Jesus and the Pharisees were always having issues. And Jesus would call out their hypocrisy. But not every Pharisee was a bad person. Nicodemus is drawn to this teacher And so he comes to Jesus to ask questions, but he comes at night. Maybe he was working at the night shift in the temple. Probably not. Most likely he wanted to not have anybody see him come to this teacher because the other Pharisees didn't like Jesus. So it's a covert conversation that Nicodemus wants to have with Jesus, but he still feels drawn to this teacher. So as he meets with Jesus, he says, in some level of flattery, but also in some truth, you come from God. You perform miraculous signs. You couldn't do it if God wasn't with you. All of that's very true. But Jesus doesn't focus on what Nicodemus says. Jesus immediately takes over the conversation and moves it in a direction that Nicodemus wasn't prepared for. Jesus says in verse 3, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. What does that have to do with what Nicodemus showed up to talk about? Probably nothing. Nicodemus isn't thinking about being born again. Nobody was thinking about being born again. That's a new heavenly concept that Jesus is introducing to the people. And that's why Nicodemus doesn't quite understand what Jesus is talking about. He thinks of things in terms of earthly, natural, physical things that we're used to. That's how you and I would think, because this is the only life we've ever really known. So he's thinking about this in terms that he understands. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb? Well, a man wouldn't want that, and neither would the mother who bore him. We don't think of things in a heavenly way because we don't know how to think of things in a heavenly way. And so Nicodemus can only talk about what he knows. And so Jesus has to expand his mind and tell him there are two different ways of understanding this life. There is the earthly way, flesh gives birth to flesh. There is the heavenly way, which is that spirit gives birth to spirit. Jesus tells him, you shouldn't be surprised at this. The spirit is moving. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going, but it is moving among us. Brand new concepts to somebody like Nicodemus, which is why he asked the question, how can this be? He knows about the Spirit. He doesn't quite know what the Spirit's going to do. That's after Pentecost. But the Spirit was very much involved in the Old Testament. So Nicodemus isn't surprised, but Jesus' teaching, it's out of this world. It's almost incomprehensible. How does Nicodemus understand this as a Pharisee in the first century. So Jesus introduces such new concepts that weren't even thought about at the time. So we don't, we don't really chide Nicodemus for not knowing. We wouldn't have known if we were living in that time. But what Jesus does rebuke Nicodemus for is not even having made the attempt to understand what he says in verse 10. You are Israel's teacher and do you not understand these things? It wasn't just Nicodemus's problem. It was the problem of all the teachers of the law. So what do I mean by that? Well, let me explain and expand upon it. The Pharisees decided that the Mosaic law and all the rules and the regulations that you would read in the book of Leviticus were extremely important. One of the reasons why is because prior to the exile, they had lost their way in following the law. And so they didn't follow the law. They didn't follow the Sabbath. That's what got them in trouble. And so that's why they were punished and exiled. That's why they're in the state they're in now. And so a group of Jews early on decided following the law is the most important thing because we don't want to be punished like that again. The problem is they overshot. They went too far in following these rules and regulations. It's good to do that to a point 
But then faith and trust and obedience has to be from the heart as well and not just by a series of laws and regulations. That's where the teachers of the law went wrong. And therefore, they wouldn't understand the deeper things of the Hebrew Bible, which is all they had. They wouldn't have understood that because they weren't really ever studying it in detail. Had they studied it in detail, they would have known God was doing something, even though some of it was mysterious and not quite understood. What I mean by that is this. God says a lot of difficult things in the Old Testament, things that we can read and we can say, yes, I understand the words and I understand the meanings, but I don't know what was really going on here. I don't really understand what God is doing. I only know that he's doing something. And if they had grappled with that for the decades, if they had passed their teaching on to the next generation of teachers who then started grappling with it themselves, and you had centuries and centuries of, of scholars trying to understand what God is doing in human history, they would have begun to understand that Messiah is so much bigger than we, un- we know about. It doesn't mean that they would have known it perfectly, but they would have spent so much time trying to know who God is and why he loves his people so much. And why he loves not just the Israelites, but everyone. And that at one point, God was going to do something that would eliminate all sin. They would have begun to understand that. Which is why I think Jesus says in verse 10, you don't even understand these things. It's because they weren't even focused on those things. Now, Jesus offers the rebuke, but he doesn't drop it in Nicodemus' lap and leave. Instead, he starts to teach Nicodemus what the truth is. So he says in verse 11, I tell you the truth. We, Jesus, the Godhead, we speak about what we know. We testify to what we have seen, but you won't believe it. I have spoken of you of the things you could understand, the earthly things, but you don't believe that. So how could you believe the heavenly things? Jesus knows all of that but he's still willing to teach Nicodemus. So he goes on to teach Nicodemus of the heavenly things as well. There isn't a person on earth who has ever gone into heaven except the person who came from heaven, the Son of Man. That's a a title Jesus has given to himself. And then Jesus, in verse 14, reaches back into the Old Testament to take a story from the book of Numbers, chapter 21, to explain what's going to happen with him. Now, as a teacher of the law, Nicodemus would have known this story very well. But that doesn't mean that Nicodemus would have understood it very well. What I mean by that is that it's such a strange story. It doesn't take up a lot of verses either. We're going to read it in a few minutes. But it's such an odd story about Moses putting a snake on a pole. What's going on there? Well, that's the story Jesus uses to describe what's going to happen with him. That is crucifixion, dying for the sins of the world. Jesus is opening up Nicodemus' mind in a way that it has never been opened up before. My guess is after this conversation and Nicodemus left and went home, he had a lot to chew on, not just for that evening, but for the rest of his life. In fact, Nicodemus was so changed by this that we find Nicodemus more in support of Jesus than the other Pharisees were. In John chapter 7, he wants Jesus to be treated fairly, whereas the other Pharisees don't want that. And in John chapter 19, we find Nicodemus helping, I think it was Joseph of Arimathea, preparing Jesus' body. Nicodemus is a changed man, in part, maybe in whole, by this conversation he's having with the Savior, where Jesus has done something for him that no one else could have done to reveal the scriptures in such a deeper way than he ever knew before. Jesus is making connections here between what God has done in the past and what God is doing in the present and what God will do in the future. So no doubt Nicodemus had much to think about as he's beginning to see God's whole plan in place. And it will take him the rest of his life to fully understand it, just like it takes us a long time, the rest of our lives, to understand everything that's written in this book. This is the starting point for you and I in how we can be more devoted to the Lord. 
Because at the end of verse 15, Jesus says that everyone who believes will live eternally. If we have a God who is offering us salvation and eternity, isn't this a God worth being devoted to? Isn't this a God that is worth being focused on? Wouldn't we be willing to get rid of all the sin that we have, all the temptations? Wouldn't we be willing to reject them in order to be devoted to a Savior who's devoted to us? Well, in order to unpack that even more, let's find out where the snake on the pole story comes from in order to make the same connection that Jesus is trying to make for Nicodemus. So let's open up to Numbers chapter 21. I will return to John chapter 3 towards the end of the sermon, but let's go to Numbers 21. So in Numbers, the book of Numbers, we get the the various stories of the people wandering in the wilderness. Now, the book of Numbers really isn't the best title for this. The reason why it's called Numbers is because the early chapters of the book gives a lot of numbers. The 12 tribes, all the things they're bringing. So there's a lot of, a lot of numbers listed. And so it became more of a generic name for the book. The better name is the Hebrew name, which is In the Wilderness. That's the actual name of this book, In the Wilderness. Why? Because that phrase is in verse 1, but also because that's the story. It's of the people wandering in the wilderness. Now, they're wandering because they're exiting Egypt. They're going to Mount Sinai. They receive the law. Then they're starting to go up to the land of Canaan, which is the promised land, so they can go into it because God promised it to them. And they have to take uh, a route that's not direct because God is trying to protect his people from other people groups that live in the area. So they are wandering in the wilderness as God prepares them to enter the promised land. Now, if you have read the books of Exodus and Numbers, you will realize that even though the people aren't in slavery anymore, the people are pretty good at complaining. We have no water. We have no bread. We don't have meat. We don't like the situation we're in. They complain quite a bit, which shows that they're not completely devoted to God. Now, the people had a rough go for 400 years. They're in the land of slavery. They're surrounded by polytheism. It has made up some of their whole cultural mindset. Now, God has done a lot of miracles for the people so that the people understand God is in their midst. God loves them. God's caring for them. God has taken them out of Egypt to bring them to the promised land. But there's a lot of sinful holdovers in their minds and hearts. And that starts coming out in their desert wanderings. The people complain quite a bit. In fact, it gets to a point that the people are disobedient. Prior to Numbers 21, we have Numbers chapter 14. And in Numbers chapter 14, the people rebel to such a degree that they tell Moses and Aaron, they tell God, no, we're not going into the promised land. The people in that land are giants, and we look like grasshoppers among them. We're going to die. So let's get rid of our current leaders, let's choose new leaders, and let's go back to Egypt. Why would you think that? Why would that even be a temptation for them? Well, humanity is usually very good at wanting to keep the status quo on things. Even if it's a bad situation, the fear of an uncertain future makes them so afraid that they would rather go back to what they are used to, even if it's difficult. That's where the people are at. They have ignored all of the the plagues that they saw God put upon the Egyptians, they've ignored God's provision of man in the desert. They have ignored God providing them water when they needed it or providing them meat when they needed it. They have ignored all of that and they want to go back to Egypt. So God tells them, you are not going into the promised land. You, grumblers, you, naysayers, will die in the desert and your children will go in instead of you. That's the background for a lot of what we read in the book of Numbers. And now we come to Numbers chapter 21. And the people complain again, which is surprising. I would think that after that punishment, they would never complain in their lives, but that's not the case. They are complaining once again. Let me read verses 4 through 7. 
They, the Israelites, traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go round Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. So the people are complaining. They have no bread. They have no water. That is not true. They do have bread, and it's called manna. They do have water. God often brings them to places where there's water, and sometimes he has to bring it out of the rock. But he will provide them water because God loves them. He is devoted to them. He wants them to survive. It's not clicking with them, or they're just ignoring it in their sinful rebellion, but God is providing for them. Some of it is by way of a test. God is testing them, too, to see if they are devoted to him. And oftentimes they fail the test. But our God is a loving God. He's a gracious God. He's a long-suffering God, and God continues to work with them. Well, now the people are lying. They're saying there's no bread. Well, they have bread. There's no water. They have that. Then they say we detest this miserable food. They detest the manna that God supernaturally gives them six days out of every week. They wake up and there's manna on the ground. While they were sleeping, it was falling. It's like a grocery store right outside your tent. All you have to do is go gather it. It is that easy. But they detest it. And by the way, is it really miserable? No, it's not. It's a miracle food. It's nutritious, it's versatile, and it's tasty. It has to be nutritious because they're going to eat it for the next 40 years. It had to sustain them. It's versatile. You could boil it into a porridge. You could grind it down and make it into a bread. So you could have it in different ways, and it was tasty. The Bible tells us it tasted like honey. It's not miserable food. It might be a bit monotonous, but why complain when God has been providing for you all this time? And why complain when God just smacked you down in Numbers chapter 14 because you complained once again and he had to discipline you so hardly? This isn't the time to complain. This is the time to trust and to be patient and to be obedient. This is the hammering out process that God is doing with the nation of Israel. And sometimes we find ourselves to have the same mindset. As Christian believers, sometimes we're not clicking with where God is going, and we often find ourselves uh, doing what the Israelites did. Yes, God proved himself faithful a thousand times over in my life, but this new uncertainty is one I just can't deal with. I don't think God's going to come through. Why wouldn't he have come through? Why won't he come through when he has come through already? This is why oftentimes you'll see believers in God recounting what God has done in the past as a, not a predictor, but as an assurance of what God will do in the future. The person who comes to mind right now is Stephen, the person who was stoned. He's talking with the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the Jewish people. What's, what's the first thing he does to convince them that Jesus is the Christ? He goes back into Israel's history and say, look at how God has been faithful and how is God is showing you his plan, and that plan is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He was stoned for that, but it's a reminder that we reach out into the past to help us understand and deal with an uncertain future. God has been faithful, and he will be faithful again. And therefore, my devotion has to be constant throughout my entire life. Now is not the time for me to get afraid and leave the Lord in this midst of the pandemic where a lot of people aren't working. We're not sure how many people are going to die. We're not sure where our retirement accounts are going to end up. It would be pretty easy to be afraid. And some people are. And I hope Christians aren't, but I'm sure it has crossed their minds. Will God be faithful? Absolutely. 
And sometimes we have to lose things because they have turned into an idol for us. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes when we look at Second Kings chapter 18. Sometimes God has to pull things away from us because we hold on to it too dearly rather than holding on to him. Here in Numbers 21, the people haven't held on to the Lord. And so God is now inflicting them with these venomous snakes, these fiery serpents. And so they pray to the Lord, or they they ask Moses to pray to the Lord. Moses does that. And now verses 8 and 9 is where the story gets just a little bit odd. And try to think about this, not as a Christian who understands the end of the story, but try to think about it as an Israelite who's hearing this for the first time. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Nothing like this had ever happened before. It hadn't happened from the time, this time, until Christ. This was brand new. Who would ever have thought of it except for the Lord? But why does the Lord do this? Well, first of all, it's a prescription for healing. There's a reason why the American Medical Association has as its insignia a snake on a pole. It comes from this story. Now, they'll probably say it comes from a Greek story about a certain man who had a snake on a pole and he was a physician. And I would say, okay, well, that's fine. That's a good politically correct answer. But the earliest recorded instance of a snake on a pole providing healing comes from the Bible. That's where the story originates. And whoever would have thought about putting a snake on a pole in order to provide healing for someone who is sick? That's a godly, heavenly thing that is going on here. So that is the prescription. But it's not that Jesus said, oh, you know, there's this story in the Old Testament that seems to relate to my crucifixion. I'll use that. No, this story is in place to foreshadow what God is going to do in the future. That whoever looks at Jesus, who was crucified, and believes, will be saved. Chances are the Israelites didn't know why Moses had to do it this way. Why did Moses have to make a bronze snake? Why is the snake up on a pole? I don't know, but I just got bit. It hurts. I'm going to die. I'm willing to look at that snake and believe. If that is what saves me, I will do it. Who would ever think that God could come to earth as a baby, grow up to a man, minister, be crucified, and all I have to do is look at him and believe to be saved. That doesn't square up with what we usually experience in life, but it's divine, it's holy, it's pure, it's heavenly, it's God's way of providing healing to a people who are constantly in a state of sick rebellion. Therefore, this story is so well linked to Christ, and that's why Christ references it. It's his story, and it helps us also to understand that God had all of this worked out 1,400 years, even before Jesus came. God knew the end of the story, and he's working these stories in to help us understand that he has an overarching plan to save us because he loves us. Isn't this a God worth being devoted to? So we have to ask ourselves a question. Am I devoted to a snake or am I devoted to a savior? And the reason why we have to ask ourselves that is because it would be so easy to think that the bronze snake actually saved me rather than the God behind it. And that's where we now divert our attention to 2 Kings chapter 18. So open up your Bibles to that passage. 2 Kings chapter 18. And as you're opening up to 2 Kings, uh, let me describe for you uh, the environment of the day. Uh, As we all know, there was good King David. He had a son, Solomon. Solomon started out well, but Solomon didn't end so well. Uh, He got um, captivated, devoted to his foreign wives, so he lost his way. 
And so God then split the kingdom of Israel into two parts, the northern kingdom led by the powerful tribe of Ephraim, and then the the southern kingdom led by Judah. Now, for the northern kingdom in its 400-year existence, it never had one good king. All the kings were bad. And that's what happens when you no longer trust in the Lord and you and you no longer go to Jerusalem and the holy city to worship, but you now set up your own city of worship. They were always steeped in idolatry. The southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, it bounced back and forth. Sometimes you had good kings, sometimes you had bad kings. Well, in chapter 18, we read about a good king, good king Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah, as the king, is the head of the nation, the political head of the nation, which means he gets to do what he wants. Unlike our system of government, where we have a Congress and there's constant debate on the floor and it takes a while to pass laws and then you can have veto or you can have a a court that overrules it and then so it goes back to the Congress. That's not the environment here. When the king says something, it happens. And so the king becomes the greatest change agent in the nation. If the king wants to make reforms, he can do it just by a word. When it's a bad king, it ends up being just a horrible situation for the nation. But when it's a good king like Hezekiah, there's re- these reforms really start to change the hearts of the people. And so that's what we begin to see here. Let me read the first four verses. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. So Hezekiah is a young man, but he's the king. He's a good man. He walks in the ways of the Lord. The Lord is pleased with him, and Hezekiah decides it is time to reform the nation. Israel always struggled with idolatry, not just with their time in Egypt, but also with the nations around them. They really became um, polytheistic themselves. They would look at how others were worshiping. They wanted to worship their way. It was really the modus operandi of the ancient Near East. You would worship a pantheon of gods because you would hope that at least one of the gods, several of the gods, would bless you with crops, with rains, with good childbirthing or livestock. That was the way people operated. And the Israelites know that, but they also had the law of God and also the power of God. But they always struggled with that. And we see that here because Hezekiah, in his reforms, has to remove some of the idols and places in Israel. He removes the high places, which were small places of worship set up on high hills. They are, there are sacred stones, probably a type of memorial stone to remember, but now it became sacred as the people were worshiping it or worshiping there. Well, Hezekiah is not going to have any of it. He smashes them. Uh, And then there are the Asherah poles, which were detestable idol-type images um, of the goddess Asherah. He cuts those down. And then we get to this this, uh, last type of reform that Hezekiah does, and that is he goes after the bronze snake. Now, this is seven to eight hundred years after Moses actually formed the snake as a prescription for his people at that time. This relic, this fetish, this talisman lasted for 800 years. This is the first time we see it showing up after the book of Numbers, but it lasted that long, and now people are burning incense to it. And they call it Nehushtan, which means bronze snake. But that's what happens with people when they're not fully devoted to the Lord. Oh, there's something to worship. I'll worship that. 
you know, God's invisible. I can't see him. I want to see something. Hey, there's a bronze snake. Moses made it. Let's worship that. That'll help us. Oh, a golden calf? Yeah, let's crank out one of those. We'll worship that. The people were constantly sinning because idolatry is one of the difficult things we have to wrestle with. We either worship God or we worship an idol. It's binary. If you don't worship God, you're worshiping something, and that something is an idol. If you're not going to worship idols, then you're going to worship God. But you can't have it both ways, which is what the people of Israel were doing. When we worship the Lord and are completely devoted to him, our hearts have no room for idols. But the moment we start losing sight of the goodness and love of God, then there's going to be an idol there. I doubt many of us worship bronze snakes, and I doubt many of us find sacred stones to worship. But our idols are just a little bit more hidden, and we're more sophisticated about it. There's plenty of snakes for us to worship in this generation. You want to worship your job? You could do that. You want to worship uh, your retirement account or your bank accounts? You can do that too. Uh, Even Christians will fall into this. You want to worship the Bible? Some Christians try to do that. You want to worship your family? Some parents find themselves so devoted to their children that they're no longer devoted to God and all their energies and their passions are towards their children. There's nothing wrong with being devoted to your family. There is a problem when our devotion, which belongs exclusively to the Lord, is now diverted to something else. But if you remain devoted to the Lord, you can be devoted to your family because it's all done in the right way. But unfortunately, we as human beings find ourselves losing sight of pure devotion to the Lord as we worship something else or as we're devoted to something else. And that's what happened with the Israelites during Hezekiah's day. They found themselves worshiping that which wasn't worth worshiping. Let us never as believers find ourselves worshiping something that's not worth worshiping. We don't worship the Bible. We read the Bible to understand it, to know God better. We don't worship our kids. We love our children dearly and we are there to instruct them, but one day they're going to grow up and move out. We don't worship our job or our accounts. Those things come and go so quickly. There's only one thing worth worshiping, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And this takes us full circle back to John chapter 3. If you have your bookmark there, go ahead and reopen to that passage John chapter 3. Why be devoted to the Lord? I've been talking about it here and there as I've gone on with the sermon, that God loves us, that God is devoted to us. Now that we have taken this little tour through the Bible, focused on the story of the snake on the pole as a prescription for healing, uh, the sin of idolatry that we can so easily dip into, and the dangers that await for us, We come back to John chapter 3 to find out where our hearts need to be. Where does our devotion lie? In verse 15, or verses 14 and 15, Jesus makes a point to tell Nicodemus that just as Moses did this, so this other thing will happen. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so somebody's going to be lifted up, the Son of Man, and in both instances, People who were sick and needing help could look at what was on the pole and be healed because the God who orchestrated all of this is willing to heal them. For you and I, the story of the snake on the pole is is a Bible story that relates to Christ, but where our focus is, is Jesus on the cross dying for us, taking upon the sins of the entire world, And then a Jesus who's no longer on the cross because he's resurrected and will one day return. Where should our devotion lie? It should lie on the person of Jesus Christ. Verses 14 and 15 are the story of Moses and the snake as it relates to Christ. But the very next verse is one of the most beloved verses in all of Scripture, John 3.16. We know it. We memorize it. You'll see it on banners in the stadiums as people 
uh, are, are displaying John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Why be devoted to the Lord? Because the Lord's devoted to us. Why love the Lord more than anything else? Because the Lord was willing to do everything, including die for us. So the question of devotion is simply a a response to a God who loves us so much that he was willing to die for us. Why should I be devoted to God? Because he's devoted to me. You and I have a wonderful Savior who has done so much for us. He has told us what he was going to do, and he did it. And now our response is to worship him with pure and complete devotion. So the question is, well, who do you worship? The snake or the Savior? There's a lot of snakes in the world called idols, and sometimes we do it. But there's a Savior out there who is constantly reaching out for us, wanting our devotion. And our response is, yes, Lord, I will serve you. I will worship you. I will love you no matter what happens. Let's pray. Lord, we have these stories throughout Scripture, stories that show us just how involved you are in our lives. From the very beginning, and it's not just in Numbers 21, it's it's in Genesis 1, Genesis 3, throughout the law, throughout the prophets, throughout the wisdom books, as David is wrestling with uh, what it means to serve a Lord. And there's another Lord as well. My Lord said to my Lord. Uh, So David understands that there's two Lords. Lord, we read that in the Psalms. These are the wisdom books throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. And then as it's unpacked fuller in the New Testament, we see one thing clearly. You love your people. Lord, we want to devote our hearts to you in the midst of uncertain times like where we're living. Uh, Maybe just in the midst of family struggles. Maybe in the midst of just our own personal um, uh, difficulties or fears. Lord, we want to be completely focused on you. Lord, help us to love you as you want to be loved. Help us to understand you as you want to be understood. Help us to know that you are so devoted to us and we can be and should be so devoted to you. Lord, it becomes, it becomes the challenge of the Christian in our day and age as there's so many distractions. But Lord, may we rise up to the challenge, not by our own effort, but by the power of the Spirit, with eyes of faith, with hearts of trust, to believe in you and your plan for your people. Lord, we love you because you first loved us, and we look forward to being with you in heaven. But while we're on earth, help us to minister well and take care of each other. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
for joining us to worship God together. Hope you all have a great week and join us again next week. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from the Word of God. If you don't have a church home, we invite you to visit Black Forest Chapel in Black Forest, Colorado, near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs. You'll find biblical teaching and authentic worship in an environment that feels like family and friends. Get directions and more information at blackforestchapel.org.